0: Welcome to the Pactum, this is Pat Abendroth, and we're doing episode 71, a Pactum responsum. I'm without Mike Grimes today, so it is a Lone Ranger edition. A fiery horse with a speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger... On the docket today, we're talking about everything from Israel to the eternal functional subordination of the sun to government, to counseling, to double imputation, law gospel, Proverbs 31, and I feel like a game show host, and so much more. It's going to be a good question and answer session. If you're just joining us, welcome. We call these Pactum Responsum episodes. But before we get to the questions, and I have 10 or so questions today to hopefully engage your mind and to stir your hearts. Special announcement, we have an Israel trip coming up February 2023. So it's going to be with Omaha Bible Church, Bethlehem Bible Church, where my brother Mike Abendroth pastors. That means we're also going to be doing No Compromise Radio and Pactum episodes while we're there. So looking forward to it. Should be a great time February 21 to March 2nd, 2023. If you're interested, you can email us at connect It's connect at thepactum.org. And uh, I have 24 spots. Mike has 24 spots. It's $500 down, fully refundable until like November. So we'll fill the 24 spots. And then what we'll do is have a waiting list. We've done this who knows how many times. We have a wonderful time together. We share the Bible teaching load. And, uh, try to go to the coolest fun of spots and we're both foodies. So one great thing about going so many times is we know what we like and we know what we don't like. And so we're, we will edit on the fly and say, no, we don't want to go to that restaurant. We've been there before. It's not any good. We want to go here. Sometimes I think we drive the guides nuts, but it makes for a better trip for you if you're going with us. So looking forward to it, it's nothing like the new Jerusalem. Um, but it is great to go and explore the land of Israel where Jesus earned salvation for us. Okay, Pactum them, Responsum. Them. We have 10 questions. And today the first one comes from Yanni, and it relates to that Israel trip. Yanni wants to know what do you think about the future of Israel? Well, let's start off on the negative. I'm not waiting uh, for a rebuilt temple in the Middle East. I'm not waiting for animal sacrifices and a reinstituted priesthood and a division between Jew and Gentile yet again. Why? Because Jesus tore down the dividing wall. We're not going to re-erect what Jesus tore down according to Ephesians. And so I'm not looking forward to Israel's future in that sense. I'm looking for a new Jerusalem according to Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 and it comes down from above, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 22. It is a heavenly Jerusalem, and uh, we're waiting for the Jew- Jerusalem uh, from above. We're already members. We're already a part of it. We're just waiting for it to happen in light of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Oh, yes, it's true. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 talk about a great in-gathering, if you will, of the Jews, and I think that's true. Uh, that's different than geopolitical Israel. That's Jewish people believing in Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ, and becoming part of the church. A fascinating read, I think, is a book called Understanding the Land of the Bible by O. Palmer Robertson. And in that book, it's really a book about prepping to go to Israel, but there's a great chapter in there about different views on the land And it relates to this question that Yanni is asking. And I think it's a good overview, a good survey. I copy it for everyone who goes on our trips, but it's also helpful for you. If you're trying to think through, is there a future for national geopolitical Israel? Or is Jesus the true and ultimate faithful son? Is he the true and ultimate faithful temple? uh, And does he fulfill those things? And I think he does. So you might want to check out episode five, which is on Zionism. And uh, it will go in much more detail to these things. I don't think uh, we're going back to the shadows. I don't think we're going back to the types. Jesus is the substance in light of Colossians. He is the antitype, the fulfillment. And so... Uh, that's that question number two is uh, from Luke It says hi guys love the show the theology and the banter is amazing thank you Luke appreciate that and then Luke goes on to say I'm a recovering Arminian oh aren't we all Luke uh, I'm, I am a recovering Arminian since discovering the doctrine of justification through the white horse Inn eight years ago he talks about assurance going through the roof isn't that true yes and amen his question has to do with EFS the eternal functional subordination of the Son. And if you don't know anything about this debate, well, you're probably not on social media, which might be a good thing. Um, But there is a teaching that became really popular in the late 80s uh, through biblical manhood and womanhood. And I think they had good motives and desires, but they didn't have a good theology proper. And they teach and they started teaching that Jesus, uh, the second person of the triune Godhead, uh, submits to the Father in eternity. So that would be different than what Christians have taught in the past. Uh, Christians have taught in the past that Jesus submits in, his, in the incarnation. So he humbles himself becoming a man. And that's the shocking part that he humbles himself in Philippians chapter 2. So we wouldn't be shocked if he was always humbling himself in eternity. No, it has to do with the incarnation. And I think that really helps Luke uh, to kind of sort this out. I think most or many, many of us had the wrong perspective on this because we had kind of fallen asleep at the wheel. I'm thankful for those who are recovering this classic old school biblical doctrine. Uh, Very glad for people like Matthew Barrett, his book, Simply Trinity. He does a good job of pointing out where people like Wayne Grudem uh, and others, uh, Bruce Ware. I mean, Bruce Ware right here says uh, that this is in the Trinity. This is the the father has supreme within the Godhead which is simply not true. Um, we've done other episodes covering these matters. I've inter- interviewed Matthew Barrett. You can check out that episode. And we have some 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 good resources to recommend. Uh, Scott Swain has an excellent little, I think it's pretty easy, easily accessible book called The Trinity and Introduction. I would check out that book for sure. Uh, he names names. He points out that Owen Strand is in error, grave theological error here. Sadly, he just seems to keep digging his heels in. There's a great lecture we will link to by David Strain. So not Scott Swain, but David Strain, which is really, really good. I think I've listened to it half a dozen times. And then also there's a good lecture online by, or a video anyway, by Jordan Cooper. Jordan Cooper was nice about it. Uh, and now he's just saying, you know what, by any historic measure, uh, it's heresy. So uh, the the sun is equal to the Father. Very God of very God, begotten, not made. It's why people have used special phrases and designations to go out of their way to protect the, the full deity of the second person of the Godhead, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We may also link to a couple of sermons that I recently preached at Omaha Bible Church that might prove helpful to you. The debate right now is pretty ugly. It's uh, very interesting. Let's Let's just understand this. Sometimes these false teachings, heresies are helpful because I now better understand the doctrine of God uh, than I did before. So I'm thankful for this. I'm also thankful I don't have to be on the front lines and for people who are battling over such things to our benefit. Okay, question number three. It is from Kevin. And Kevin says he's hearing more and more regarding the denial of original sin. Please help me understand what the implications might be of denying this doctrine. I'll just say Original sin. This is according to Michael Horton, a great resource. I'm using it more and more when it comes to just teaching and making things simple. This is his bigger systematic theology. It's called the Christian faith helpful resource. Original sin is the term according to Michael Horton that the Western church has employed to refer to our collective human guilt and corruption. Regarding its significance, he says, no doctrine is more crucial to our anthropology, our study of humankind, and how about this, soteriology, doctrine of salvation, and yet no doctrine has been more relentlessly criticized ever since it was articulated. So it's actually really important that we understand the fall, but it's also important that we understand original sin. There have been false teachers that have denied such things, uh, such as the Socinians, with Socinianism in the 16th century, and they are really just forerunners. They're anticipating Unitarianism with um, theological liberalism, Enlightenment rationalism, post-Enlightenment rationalism, uh, the quote-unquote great, not so great, um, the very influential and popular but heretical teacher, Charles Grandison Finney, would have been someone who would have denied this doctrine. What we need instead is we need to understand federal headship and we need to understand a covenantal account of original sin. And that's going to focus on the representative. It's going to focus on the federal headship. It's going to uh, be covenantal in its structure and uh, all of that before God, accountable to God. So I hope that helps you. Original sin is a thing, unfortunately, but we'd better understand it because if we don't understand something of it and its implications and ramifications, we're going to, at best, at best, at best, be weak on our understanding regarding salvation. Well, let's do the next one. This one is from Brad. What are your views on deliverance? I don't think he means the movie. What are your views on deliverance, the casting out of demons as a ministry of the church? Obviously described in scripture, is it mandated, allowed, encouraged, something the church ought to be doing? I think the simple answer to that question is no. No uh deliverance ministry comes through the gospel is what i would say if you believe in the lord jesus christ you will be saved and you no longer need to fear Satan and his minions. It is true. Satan is alive and well. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4. Not only are we dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2, 1 and following. Also, it says, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, all of that is BC. All of that is apart from Christ. All of that is before Christ. And so what we need to remember is Satan is alive and well, and there are demons and demonic things. And yet first John chapter four, verse four says this little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so you want to be in Christ, and that happens when you trust in Christ. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the deliverance ministry. And uh, beyond that, we don't need to come up with gimmicks. We don't need to result or, uh, resort to guesswork. But I think people who are trying to make a name for themselves or kind of be Gnostic-ish, you can check out our Um, isms episodes dealing with Gnosticism. It's some kind of secret, some kind of thing that somebody else doesn't have. And you have to go to the special teacher or buy the special book or go to a special seminar to learn how to map your neighborhood and figure out where all the ancestral demons are. And I think it's a bunch of theological hogwash. So with that said, a historic an interesting historic point or observation would be, and I'm not the first one to make it, uh, is that during the life of Jesus and the apostles, early church, uh, We see in redemptive history an upsurge. We see an uptick. We see demonic activity on earth like never before. And if you stop and think about it, that would make sense. Uh, Jesus is tempted by the devil as the last Adam, and they're doing all that they can to oppose him and undermine him and even somewhat the apostles after them. But it's not the norm We see demons in the Old Testament or demonic activity, satanic activity, but even in the Old Testament, it's not the norm. It's something that is unique and it's important that we remember that. Maybe one final thing would be this. When I sin, when I am misled, when I am deceived, it may be the deceiver involved and yet it might just be me because I am a sinner leading a sinful life as redeemed as I might be. And so How do I know which one it is? I don't really know which one it is. And so I'm called to love God and love my neighbor. I'm called to do the right thing, regardless of who is busy trying to distract me. It might be my own sinful heart. It might be the sinful heart of another human being. Uh, It might be demonic. I don't know. But I actually think we glorify demons when everything is a demon. It's the demon of lust or the demon of greed or the demon of, I think we probably just give the demons too much credit in that case and what we need to do is just do the right thing and when we don't do the right right thing we need to ask for forgiveness and know that we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous hope that helps next question number five uh, and as you're listening to the to this dear pactum listeners uh, i hope you maybe do what i try to do when i listen to these things i like these kind of q a's because it causes me to say how would i answer that question So I'm asking you, how would you answer this next question before I do? Maybe you'll push pause. I don't know. Number five, it's from Brad. And the question is simple and yet profound. Is eternal conscious torment essential to orthodoxy? Is eternal conscious torment essential to orthodoxy? And my response, Brad, is I'm inclined to say yes. Uh, I'm inclined to say yes, because Jesus talks a lot about hell and hell is eternal, just as eternal life is eternal. And so I think one lasts as long as the other, and it's pretty straightforward. uh, And so I think it is vital. Do you have to believe this in particular to be saved? Uh, No, I I, I guess I don't think so. But when I read the words of Jesus and they're pretty straightforward, I... (laughs) Tongue in cheek, I tend to believe him. So text like Revelation 14, it says, And the smoke of their torment, this is is verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's eternal life kind of talk, but this is eternal condemnation. Forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And unbelievers are cast in the lake of fire as well. So eternal conscious torment. I think the answer to our question uh, is Yes. Now, I, I remember I had a friend in seminary. Let's call him John because that was his name. <laughs> and and he did not believe these things. He was some sort of annihilationist. And I just couldn't get my mind around it. I'm like, listen, Jonathan, uh, obvious Revelation chapter 20. And I remember he kind of patted me on the head like I just wasn't in the know and I wasn't academic enough. Uh, it just seems to me that forever and ever and forever and ever means forever and ever. So let's, let's write a poem about it. Now you might say, what about, what about metaphor? Uh, And I say, yeah, the Bible uses metaphors and it uses figures of speech, but that doesn't mean it's, it's lesser. Uh, What a great note from the Reformation study Bible here. If these images are indeed symbols, then we must conclude that, that the reality is worse than the symbol suggests. The function of symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher or more intense state of actuality than the symbol itself can contain. That Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. That's good insight. In fact, I think it's great insight as we want to think this through. Typically, I think when people are trying to say, well, it's not eternal conscious torment, it's just kind of trying to weasel out of it. And uh, we we, we are not weasel fans here on the Pactum. How about if we just uh, go with what it says? Now, it is true. If you look, you know, you consider outside of the city in old, the old city of Jerusalem, where people dump their garbage and dead bodies and all of these other things, and uh, there would be flames that would not go out because of the methane buildup and things like that. I used to play golf when I lived in Southern California. I didn't play golf well, but I tried to play golf and a friend of mine said, Oh yeah, where you play golf. Uh, I think it was called Shoal Canyon. I remember because I think of Sheol and the description of hell. And a friend of mine said, yeah, I grew up around there and we would go there and kind of sneak out and, and hang out. It used to be a landfill before it was a golf course. And uh, he said, yeah, the, the fire would come out of the ground because of the methane. And so I thought, yeah, it reminds me of Sheol, reminds me of hell. Sure it might be an image that's used as a symbol from the first century, but that that doesn't take away from its awfulness. Next question is question number six. It comes from Colton, if it's the Colton I'm thinking of, Colton is a faithful church member, so I like it that people respond to the Pactum responsims who are church members and people who live on the other side of the globe, because we are part of the Pactum verse, right? Okay, Colton says this, we know that through Christ's fulfillment of the law on our behalf, we are declared righteous, not made righteous, clothed in righteousness, not infused with righteousness. Ooh, good job, Colton. Your whoever your pastor is, you should like maybe suggest that he get a raise Uh, because if you've learned that from from your pastor, wow, he must be awesome. Oh, I kid. That's right. We're not made righteous. We're not infused with righteousness. We are declared righteous. We're made righteous in the sense that we're made righteous in the eyes of God, in the court of God. But it's it's imputation because it's Christ's obedience to the law credited to us. It, it, to us. It is Christ's righteousness. Colton goes on to say, So for the other side of imputation, our sin imputed to Christ. Is it right to speak of the means of imputation in like manner? And Colton, I think the answer to that is yes. And so when we have a text like you've also referenced in your question, like Second Corinthians 5.21, we're going to interpret that sanely and carefully where it says, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, even that text helps us to interpret the other parts of the text. Jesus did not become a sinner, just like we're not actually righteous in justification. No, he knew no sin. So therefore we have to say, kind of like Sherlock Holmes here in our hermeneutics, what does it then therefore mean he made him to be sin? Well, if you isolated that passage, which I know Colton is not apt to do, We don't want you to be apt to do it either. If you isolated that passage, you could run with it and come up with all kinds of theological shenanigans. Let's not do that. Whatever he made him to be sin means, it's right next to the next statement, who knew no sin. And so it has to do with imputation. Ours is credited to him. It is imputed to him, though he he himself never sinned perfectly righteous and so it is the great exchange i can remember as a new christian uh, i won't name the church but some of the pactum listeners might be in the epigenosis in the special knowledge um, gnosticism but the pastor uh, i was an i was a young christian and the pastor for shock value i think but because of theological shallowness and we've all been there, all done that. So I'm not trying to throw stones. Uh, I do live in a glass house, but the pastor would say that Jesus became the sinner on the cross, that Jesus became the murderer. He became the prostitute. And I remember as a new Christian, just thinking, wow, seriously. And some of the more theologically astute Uh, Members of the congregation uh, that had better theological training would say, no, actually, and in private, in love, I think, uh, to the pastor, actually, that's not true. Um, There's this thing called imputation. And Jesus did not actually become a sinner. Never did he. No, in fact, he's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who only and always and forever upheld the law. Jesus Christ, the righteous. First John chapter two, verse one. And he was. Credited, if you will, our sin was imputed to him as our substitute. We're on number seven. How are we doing with answering these questions? This one comes from JT. He says, I've been listening to some episodes. Thank you, JT. Some people have told me that everything in the Bible can't be fit into law and gospel. Well, I think you should stop listening to them, JT, or maybe keep listening to them, but try to be discerning, uh, because in actuality, whoever's telling you that, well, isn't on the right right side of history, or maybe they're not Protestant, because whether you're Reformed or Lutheran, if you're in the Protestant tradition, um, actually, if you listen to our episode on law and gospel, we have enough quotes uh, to prove our case whether it's William Perkins or someone else, to prove the case uh, that in actuality, this is how the reformers talked. This is how those who are Protestants talked. This is how people like Charles Haddon Spurgeon spoke. So with that in mind, JT goes on to say, I mean, is the third use of the law biblical? And I want to say, JT, it is biblical. Um, you can 't find it in a word search, uh, but bibli and, and biblicists will insist on that, but typically that 's they 're hiding behind their theological and historical ignorance. I might have to say, and i 'm not saying that about you i 'm just saying uh, that 's often the case with those who are maybe trying to bend your ear. JT goes on to say, I heard about the law and gospel distinction when I was wondering about Luke 9, 57 to 62. Those verses crush my soul. I love my family, and I couldn't imagine abandoning them. I've heard that God is first, and you must follow him. I just get really nervous because I don't want to be listening to wrong teachings. Thank you. Well, thank you, JT. This is such an important question, and I know a lot of people are going to benefit from it. Here's how we think in terms of understanding this issue. Law is what God requires. Gospel is what God provides. It's just a shorthand way of thinking through. God requires things. He requires obedience. And he doesn't require half-hearted 99% obedience or anything less. He requires perfect obedience. He requires perfect righteousness. And and there's none righteous, no, not one. So the law smokes us to begin with, if you will, and the gospel, the good news about what God has done in Christ, well, that's what God provides by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. That's all we mean, and that's really what the essence of what we mean by law and gospel. It is a simple kind of shorthand. A good article we can link in the show notes about this, JT is uh, an article that just came out by my brother, my brother, Mike Abendroth. It's called From Lordship to Law Gospel. It's on the Heidel blog, and uh, we'll link that for you. Uh, And you can also look at episode two. Maybe you listen to that one on law and gospel. Also episode 54 regarding law and gospel and Proverbs. So this is vital because otherwise what we end up doing is we deny Things like justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, which is vital and essential to the gospel. So we've we've got to have this stuck in our minds. And people who haven't thought through the systematic kind of theological categories tend to get this wrong. Now, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62 is something that you say uh, really uh, troubles you. Or you say it crushes your your soul, which sounds heavy. And uh, so well, let's, let's work through it together. It says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, first of all, the obvious is we we couldn't agree more with what Jesus says. The question is, what is he getting at? The question is, what is he exposing? Well, certainly he is getting at and he is exposing this kind of faux, make-believe, half-hearted trust in him. And so he knows people's hearts. We don't know people's hearts. But he says, all right, let me see if you actually want to follow me and if you really want to put your trust in me or if it's for some kind of mixed motive. So keep that in mind. Don't let those kinds of passages, which are really important, Don't let those kinds of passages, these historical narrative passages, exposing people's sinful mixed motives, don't let them derail your understanding of sola fide, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, JT, we have peace with God. So is it law or gospel? Well, if you hear this this saying, it's what Jesus requires, this this radical obedience, and they don't have it, guess what? I would say that that's, that's law. Now, if you are already believing in Jesus and you've already trusted in him and Jesus says such radical things, you know what? It's still law and now it's third use of the law because I already belong to Jesus. I'm already united to Christ by faith, if that's the case. And so I I want to do the right thing because I already belong to him. So how you hear those statements has everything to do with whether or not you are in Christ or not in Christ. It is why theologians have carefully, wisely, insightfully said, first use of the law to show us our sin and misery, to drive us to Christ. Third, the second one is the governing kind of governmental use. Third use, if you're already in Christ God's word, God's law is a light unto your path. It is critical that we get this right and we get this right with categories that are afforded to us by thoughtfully sorting through the different texts of scripture because the Bible is not gospel. The Bible isn't theological alphabet soup and so we can make some sanctified sense of the whole thing. JT you also mentioned second Peter chapter 1 verses 10 to 11 and it says therefore brothers Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, true words, good words, important words. Let's remember this. While we do the right thing, and that can be a source of assurance and can feed our assurance, because you know what? We were dead in trespasses and sins. God makes us alive, and alive beings should look alive, and we should therefore bear fruit. That's absolutely true. But it's also absolutely true that at the beginning of our Christian experience, we can have assurance. We don't have to wait. Yeah, we can have more assurance, but Romans chapter 8, verse 1 clearly talks about assurance happening because of our trust in Christ. So don't live in abject fear. What you want to do is live with confidence because you're looking to Christ, who is a perfect savior. And any kind of theological construct that would undermine that doesn't look very well, it looks pretty Romish, is what it does. And let's not go there. Next question, question number eight, and it comes from. Chris. Chris says, hi, Mike. Hi, Abe. Well, must be Chris Ennis because no one calls me Abe other than Christopher Ennis, friend of the podcast, friend of the pactum. He said, love your recent episode on Proverbs 31. That's episode 54. We would commend it to you. And just so you know, Proverbs, Proverbs 31 is not only about women, contrary to popular opinion. He says, very exciting, super helpful. I promise I'm not trying to stump you as my question is a bit involved. I wished you would have additionally touched on Colossians 2, 3 and Matthew 11:19. 19. I'm curious how you see Jesus in light of number one, wisdom's feminine personification. Number two, Jesus being the radiance of wisdom incarnate. And number three, how Jesus can distinguish himself from wisdom as her offspring. How can Jesus be Wisdom and seemingly not be wisdom and not to be culturally culturally relevant, Chris says. Does gender matter? Is it wise to chalk this riddle up as mystery or can we, should we understand the details? Thank you for your ministry, Chris. Thank you for your question. To simply respond, I would just say that language is accommodating. And so how is it that Jesus can be wisdom and also wisdom's offspring? Well, language is accommodating. He can be both, even if it means in different senses. And since Chris is a friend, I'm going to say this with a smile on my face. Hey, Chris, you just have to get over your post enlightenment, uh, dispensational hermeneutics that insist on literalism and end up being clueless about nuance. (laughs) So, um, I think that might help just just take a chill pill and relax and Jesus can be wisdom and Jesus can be wisdom's offspring two things can be true at once just not in the same exact way so in addition kidding aside mystery is good exactly how we can sort out all the details uh, mystery is a positive thing and we need to keep that in mind also Again, back to the language thing and how God uses baby talk to talk to us in ways that we can understand truly, even though we can't understand exhaustively. Question number nine, and that question is... What is the role of government? What is the believer's relationship to secular government? How are we to understand the principles laid out in Romans 13? What are the historical views regarding controversy surrounding Romans 13? Uh, that's a whole lot of questions. Not one question, but I think they are actually great questions to give a simple answer. And yes, we should do a whole episode on this, but I would commend to you a Great book by my friend, David Van Drunen, otherwise known as DVD. Uh, David Van Drunen wrote a book here recently called Politics After Christendom. Subtitle is Political Theology in a Fractured World. So here's what Van Drunen does. So I'll do the flyby version. He says this, God has ordained civil government, that's important, as the ruling authority of political communities. To be legitimate, number one, he says that it's to be, le- government is to be legitimate. And by that, he means God ordained. Number two, but provisional. And by provisional, he means temporary because there's going to come a day when Jesus returns and he will rule and reign with an iron scepter, an iron fist, if you will. So it's provisional, temporary. And now, and to be, number three, common. And by common, Dave means to administer justice on behalf of all people, common, all people within their jurisdiction. And he unpacks that at length. I'm just giving you the flyby version. And then number four, but accountable, but accountable. And by accountable, he means every governing authority is accountable. Civil officials are not their own bosses. Even if they're autocratic, they're accountable. Uh, People are, Uh, The the people they govern are also not their own bosses. Even in a democracy, they are accountable. He says magistrates are keyword servants and another keyword ministers of God. Romans 13 verses four and six, who is the only ultimate authority. I wish everyone would read that book and I wish they would read it. Objectively, not with some sort of crazed, dazed, and confused theonomic uh, perspective, which I think gets wrong, and critiques of Vanderdonk's work I think end up being pretty lacking and lack luster. And so that's that's kind of the the, the basic flyby version. Now, P, you know, Peter talks about this: the legitimacy of, of government and secular government, even. And yet in the book of Acts, when the secular government requires him to do something that is contrary to God's will and God's word, he does what's right and uh, takes his licks, so to speak. And we would want to do the same. So I hope that helps. Final question. And it's question number 10. And here it goes. Hey, brothers. I listened to the episode on pietism and found it to be edifying. It's definitely something that I've seen in my own heart for sure. I'm curious how you encourage your people when it comes to the word of God. You talked about the public means of grace and how people talk about their quiet time in preaching and conversations with people. Do you emphasize the public gathering most? Is that how it should be? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I'm wondering how we can spur our people to spend time in the word without being pietistic. Any thoughts? My first thought is, that's a great question. And what we don't want to do is over pendulum swing. What we don't want to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And so let's not have it be an either or let's have it be a both and. But maybe when we talked about this, we, prob- we may have overemphasized one thing in critiquing pietism because it's so radically over-individualized and over-personalized uh, that it swings away from the corporate. And I like to remind people that for a long time, the, 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 the individual did not have a Bible. And so what did they do? It's corporate. You're going to mandate that people have a quiet time when they don't have a Bible? Well, that, that, that's ludicrous. And so just just remember that and remember there's something special there's something extraordinary about the ordinary gathering of the people of God to hear the word of God preached by the man of God and I think we're at a place where we where we really devalue that so let's upvalue that not devalue that and I want to hide your word in my heart oh god That's how I'm not going to sin against you. I want to meditate upon your precepts. And so, yeah, I want to memorize scripture. I want to learn scripture. I want to read scripture. So it's a both and answer. So I'm really glad you asked the question because it provides us with an opportunity for clarification. What we want to be careful to do, though, what we want to be careful not to do is like in some of the spiritual disciplines books. We say, this is what you must do. And here's when you must do it. And here's how many days a week, every day you must do it. And that that probably is out of balance. But at the same time, we can encourage people to be faithful Bereans, examining the scriptures to see if things are really true or not, that their preacher is saying, and so on and so forth. I want to hide God's word in my heart. I want to meditate, meditate upon God's word. Absolutely. But at the same time, let's not undervalue corporate together gathering in closing. Thank you so much for being a part of what's going on in the world of the pactum and the pactum verse. It does mean a lot. We're seeing great growth. We're seeing some great fruitfulness. And uh, if you want to share the pactum with your friends, that's a great thing to do. We appreciate it. If you want to give us five stars, because we do affirm the five solas and the five points of Calvinism, if you will. If you want to be in touch with us, uh, you can find us on Twitter. It's at the Pactum. If you want to find us on Instagram, it is at the Pactum Theology. You can also find us on our website, which is thepactum.org. If you want to send us a question about uh, regarding the next Pactum Responsum, you can do that. Connect at thepactum.org is our email Thank you very, very, very Pactum much. We'll see you next time on The Pactum.